All right, I'm going to ask that we go to the Lord one more time, just to draw our attention to His Word and recalibrate our minds and, um, and get our focus and our hearts prepared. If you would, join me in prayer. Father, Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, our thoughts um, can escape us, they can flee, and Lord, that's exactly what the evil one would want us to do at this time as we turn to our attention to your word. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever distractions may be uh, bothering us, um, discouraging us, or worries that may be on our minds, Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in your word, that we'd be reminded that your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. And Lord, that no matter how we feel in the moment, we are in Christ, we are yours. Remind us of these truths as we come to your word. It is in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, our journey through this magnum opus of Paul. Uh, we, we're, we're hitting the climactic point, and, uh, and I have good news for you when we get back in chapter 12. Not that it's easy sledding, but we're going downhill, uh, and so we're, we're at the top, and uh, by God's grace, we'll, we'll be able to come back down the mountain. Here are the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 25, chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We think in our lives, the times that we are most inspired or stand in awe or wonder of something, it occurs when we witness something, or a person, or a place, or an event that is greater than ourselves, right? We're not lifted to new heights in our aspirations by the probable, and what we deem to be humanly possible. Rather, when we stand in amazement and wonder, it's when we see the impossible occur. Whether it's an impossible play on a sports event, 
You're like, I cannot believe that happened. You don't, it's the same amount of points, usually. Yeah? It's, it's the same amount of points. Just the, the way they did it was remarkable. Or maybe the first time you saw or witnessed the birth of a child. Wow, that happened. Or the stories you hear, stories of those who might be plagued by cancer and odds are stacked against them, but you hear that they beat cancer. Or sometimes we're just in amazement by the creation itself. Right now, I am in awe of the lava that's spilling up in in Hawaii. I'm like, what would that be like if in my backyard lava started to plop up or in our our driveway and and some of you are looking like why are you mesmerized by that i don't know i just am i told some a a group of people yesterday i'd want to get one of my the pots out of the kitchen and see if i could scoop some up and and look at it and then someone said that'll be the last time you scoop anything up (laughs) probably or maybe you've, you've just stared into the sky and contemplated the stars and the galaxies. You've just been overwhelmed by the moment. Or you've stood on the shore and you felt the force of the ocean's waves crash against you. Or maybe you have climbed the peak of a mountain and you've been able to look at the peak and, and, and look at the earth's terrain in these experiences that we are filled with awe and wonder, not because we think, oh, I'm so great. It's because we've witnessed something greater than ourselves. And this is the purpose of Romans chapter 9 through 11. It's been to open our eyes to something greater than ourselves. It's to take us up the mountain peak to take us, uh, if you want to change the analogy, to the depths of the depths and realize we are small. To cause us to feel the force of God's sovereign hand over our lives, to awaken us to our helplessness and our utter dependence upon God's mercy. See, this section of Scripture has not been written so that God's ways might become comprehensible or even acceptable to us. Rather, it's been written that we would learn that His ways are beyond us, but that His ways are just, that His ways are good, and His ways will ultimately bring about His glory. And when His glory is brought about, our good comes about. And this is good news because we don't stand in wonder over that which we can comprehend or that which we can figure out. We don't want a God who is someone, oh, I've got him under control. I've got him in my box. I've got him figured out. No, we want a God who's not like us. We want a God who's greater than us. We want a God who is infinitely superior, glorious, and more wise than we are. While we experience moments of wonder in this life, whether it's my strange fascination with lava coming up on TV or what it would be like to be there, those moments are, 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 are flicker, right? They're, they're, they're mist, they're a vapor. They're there for a moment, and then we move on. But what they remind us about is that we were created for something more. Something that would hold our thoughts captive, hold our imaginations at wonder, to, to cause our jaws to drop and never come back up. 
And the only one who can do that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the treasure by which we will be gifted. The treasure that can never be exhausted. The one, the jewel that will always see new refractions of light, and new elements to wonder at and behold forever. And this whole creation has been made, has been fashioned in such a way so that we would catch glimmers of it. Glimmers. To remind us that there is something more. And so this is the purpose of Romans 9 through 11, that God would receive all glory. That's where Paul ends. To him be glory forever. And where I want us to be this morning is to be able to say that last word at the end of the verse. Amen. It means let it be truly. That we would truly say let God's glory be forever and ever. And not that we would just say it, but that we would feel it. And I would venture to say that most of us right now don't feel it. I can just look at us. And I'll tell you, that's my own heart right now. And that's been the the prayer that I've had this, this morning and this week coming to this text. Is because I want to experience verses 33 through 36 like Paul experienced it. And the trouble is, is we are captivated by lesser things. Lesser things. So it's my prayer this morning that as our hearts are prone to wander, some of us have already wandered. You've already checked out. The evil one has us distracted based on things that haven't gone right in the service and all all sorts of stuff. And I want to say, come back. I'm praying and asking God, work in us, hold us captivated, mercy us, keep our eyes focused, keep our hearts attentive, bring us to be able to say amen at the end of this passage. It's my prayer for us that we would have our affections so kindled by this mysterious plan of salvation that our heart's greatest desire, this is where I want to be, I want my heart's greatest desire to truly be that glory and honor would be to him forever and ever. And I know I'm not there, but I want to be there. So with that in mind, we're going to look at God's mysterious plan of salvation. We're going to look at it from three angles. We're going to look at it from God's uh, redemptive plan. Just look there, look at God's merciful plan and God's transcendent plan. begin with God's redemptive plan. Immediately in our passage, the scripture calls us or goes right after our own human sensibilities, our own propensity to be wise in ourselves and our own sight. It says, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. You see that? This is what we're always prone to be, that I've got it figured out. that somehow I have have conquered God or other people. But Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls us to be wise, not in our own sight, but in God's eyes. And to do that, he summarizes God's mysterious plan of salvation for Israel and the world. When he goes on, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Paul calls this a mystery. Right there, it should be tipping our hats. We're not going to figure this thing out. Mystery in the New Testament can simply be understood as God's hidden plan of salvation made known through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something previously hidden, but now made known, his, his, his redemptive plans. And here in verses 25 through 26, we're made privy of one component of the mystery. Paul mentions another mystery in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection. I, want you to be, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that will be changed at the twinkling of an eye. Okay, I get that, but I don't get it. How's my body going to go from the dust to being perfect? He just says, it will. It's a mystery. And so here he has a mystery for us about the end of the age namely God's hidden plan for saving the nations in Israel. As we consider these verses, there's kind of three elements here that he does not want us to be unaware of, three aspects to this mystery. And the first is that there is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. A hardening has come upon the nation. And we saw that, if you've been with us in, in chapter 11, in verses 1 through 10. Namely, that at the present time, in this era, since Christ crucified, the church has been established, God has judged the nation of Israel. God has cursed Israel by blinding a majority of them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. And this is what he means by the fact that this hardening is partial. It's a partial hardening. It's partial because he's kept for himself a remnant among Israel who are chosen by grace. We saw that in chapter 10, or uh, chapter 11, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Every generation, God has amongst uh, the nation of Israel a remnant, a select few that he has grace, that he has chosen, who will believe in Jesus, but the rest of the nation has been hardened. And so Paul says he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. But there's a second element to this mystery, and that is that God's hardening of Israel is limited. It's limited until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Again, we explored that particularly last Sunday, if you were with us. And so Israel's hardening, and this analogy that Paul gives in chapter 11, verses 17 through 24, of an, of an olive tree, and, and that there are uh, branches in this olive tree, and God has broken off, he's hardened ethnic Israel. He has cut them off from his people but for you and me who believe, he has grafted us into this olive tree. And so Israel's hardening is the equivalent of them being cut off from God's people. And this has allowed us, non-Jews, to be brought into God's people through faith in Christ. 
Now, notice he says this hardening will occur until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Well, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? Fullness of the Gentiles is the full number of those that God has chosen to be saved. He's got a number. You're seeing God's sovereignty all over the place. He uses the same language in verse 12 of chapter 11 to speak of Israel. Now, if their trespass, that's Israel's, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much will their fullness mean? Full inclusion. When he saves them, whatever that number is. And so he's got, within the nations, he is working, and he's hardened Israel, and he's giving his grace and mercy to the nations right now. In a way that was vastly different than before the cross. It was the inverse. The only light was in Israel. And the rest of the world was in darkness. Just imagine flipping that script. Darkness on Israel, light to the nations. That's what's going on. And it will be this way until he saved all those whom he is going to save among the nations. When's that going to be? I have no idea. That could be today. It could be another thousand or ten thousand years from now. Then finally, when the full number of the Gentiles is brought into the people of God, he says it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. Essentially, here's the progression. Israel's hardened until the full number of the elect among the Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel at that time will be saved. How are they going to be saved? How how is this going to happen? Well, Paul cites two passages from the prophet Isaiah in in the rest of verses 26 and 27 and applies them, I take it, to to the return of Christ. Look, Look at what he says. He says, and in this way all Israel will be saved, verse 26, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In the Old Testament, the deliverer that that Israel was waiting for, that Isaiah is speaking for, is the one true God, Yahweh. However, as Paul has taught us, and the rest of the New Testament has taught us, Who is this one whom they call Lord? His name is Jesus. And Paul sees in this passage that Israel will be saved when Jesus comes from Zion. You're like, what is Zion? We don't don't talk about that. Well, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. In particular, it's the mountain which the temple was built. It's the temple mount. Mount Zion is sometimes how it's referred to. In other words, Zion represented in the Old Testament the dwelling place of God. And a deliverer will come from the dwelling place of God. A deliverer, God will come for us. That's what they were expecting. And Paul says he will come for you, and when he comes, that is when all Israel will be saved. Now the question is, is where is God's dwelling place? Jews still think it's Mount Zion, the earthly Mount Zion. Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. 
But Christ is ascended and is seated at the right hand of God and sits on the throne where he rules. And where is that throne? That's the heavenly Zion. I want you to see this in Hebrews 12, 22. I think it'll be up on the screen. The writer of Hebrews is reminding, actually, Jewish congregation not to turn back to the old covenant, the law, the sacrifices, the temple. Don't lay hold of those things. Rather, look at what he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And what is that city? The heavenly Jerusalem. So if we come back to Romans eleven twenty six 26 27, Paul anticipates Israel's salvation will occur at Jesus' return when he comes from heaven, from this heavenly city, from the dwelling place of God. And when he returns, two things will occur. Number one, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That is the disbelief in the gospel. He will banish ungodliness and sin because they will believe in Jesus. And number two, Israel will experience the new covenant when Jesus takes away their sins. You and I are already experiencing the new covenant. He established this new covenant, this new promise that is sealed and solidified by his death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and we are proclaiming the new covenant that we're members of his family. Israel will join us on that day. That's what Paul is saying. And it'll be on that day when he takes away their sins. Now, Pastor Joshua read from the prophet Zechariah, where Zechariah anticipates a day in Israel when they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they'll mourn for him as for an only child, and then the last verse that Pastor Joshua read was in chapter 13, 1, and where the prophet says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And what will happen? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. The book of Revelation associates this passage, them looking upon whom they have pierced with his second coming. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who, what? Pierced him. I think this is what Jesus meant when he was weeping over Jerusalem before he was betrayed and handed over and he would to be crucified. We've read this passage several times in these chapters, but I, I hope there's new light to be seen here. Go to Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. It's up on the screen. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem for the judgment that's about to come upon them. And I, I think this is what Paul's referring to. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I'll see what he says next. See, your house is left to you desolate. That's judgment. Ultimately, that's AD 70, where the destruction of the temple comes. Rome, and Rome comes in and ransacks Jerusalem, lights it on fire, destroys it. But that was symbolic of the hardening and the judgment that had come upon this nation. Notice what Jesus says. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again. You will not see me. What did Paul say the hardening was? Having eyes you will not see. Having ears you will not hear. Jesus says, you will not see me again until what? You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Seems like Jesus has some sort of hardening, judgment's going to come. You, you will not see me, O Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, how are they going to do that? That's the mystery. And Paul tells us, not this won't happen until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then a Redeemer will come from Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus will return. And in that day, Israel will profess Jesus as the Christ. Those who are alive, that last generation at that time, a fountain will be opened up on the house of David, on the city of Jerusalem. And that way, the generation of Israelites alive at that time will confess him as Lord and believe. Now, there's speculation, does this happen right before, then Jesus comes back, or is it when Jesus comes back and this happens? I don't know. And so what I've been trying to say is Israel's salvation coincides with the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. I'm not sure all the details there. But it will be the culminating event. And God will keep his promises to Israel. And so this is God's redemptive plan that he's working out until the return of Christ. Right now, his, his, his grace is being extended to the nations. And so we are to be busy preaching the gospel, even to Jews, because there's a remnant, and how are they going to be saved? When they hear the gospel and believe. And so for us, practically, that doesn't mean, oh, we, we try to differentiate. No, we're, this is behind the veil. This is divine sovereignty stuff. We don't know who's who. We just do what God tells us to do and let him handle the results. But this is God's redemptive plan, and his plan, or the purpose behind it, is to dispense his mercy upon all. So let's look at God's merciful plan. Understanding the workings of God's redemptive plan, we, we learn, verse 28, Paul's now coming back and he's explaining some of this, as regards the gospel, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they are enemies for your sake. Who's the they? That's Israel. So right now, as it concerns the relationship to the gospel, they are enemies for Oak Park's sake. That's going to blow our minds, I hope. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So there's a sense in which Israel is playing a double role. They're, they're enemies right now of God, but yet they have a special place with God. Hence the all Israel be saved to the return of Christ. And so at the present time, Israel is at enmity with God and is opposed to the gospel. Nevertheless, Paul reminds us that this is for yours and my sake. This is for our benefit. But it's not the final word. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, verse 29. 
Since God has elected the nation of Israel, he chose Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised them a people, an ethnic people. And he didn't choose Egypt. And he didn't choose all the other nations of the world. He chose the Hebrews. And he made a promise to them. And Paul reminds us of that promise that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And that is good news for all of us. And you know what? He has called and elected you if you've trusted in Christ. It's evidence of his work in you. And he says, my calling of you and the gifts of my spirit that I give to you are irrevocable. There's no take backs. And Paul's reminding us that God still, even though he's judging the nation, he has, he has a special place for them and he's preserving them until the end to which he will then, they'll believe in Jesus and receive the promises. So Paul here is explaining that God's mysterious plan is being worked out in such a way, we're going to see, that everyone must rely on God's mercy alone for salvation, even the Jews. He's trying to put everybody on a, or he's not trying, he is, he's putting everybody on an even playing field. And and maybe you're here today and you're not tracking with all this. Maybe you're just drowning in all the details. Just lift up your head. This is what I want you to remember. This is what I want you to hear. And if you're, if you're not a believer today and you're, you're visiting, this, this is the good news for you. That God is a merciful God. And that if you call out upon him and you beg for his mercy and you plead for his mercy, he will dispense it. But this is what he wants us to see. That all humanity, no matter what ethnicity you come from, whatever your background, your upbringing, is that we are all need in need of God's mercy. And that is the only way. You can't work your way there. You can't attend church enough. You cannot do enough good deeds. No, you must see your moral bankruptcy and just plead upon him and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only hope. And so all these complicated things in God's plan, if you're not tracking, know this, God's mercy is your only hope. That's the point. And so if you're not a believer and you're here today and, and you're thinking you got to do things, remember Ms. Marie's testimony where she said, I used to think you had to go and memorize a chapter of, of a, a book of the Bible. I had to attend. I had to do all these things. And then somehow I became a Christian. No, when she became a Christian, she realized it was the other way around. I become a Christian and then I become a part of all these things. And it's my prayer that God would mercy you. And you would lift up your eyes to him and you will confess with your mouth that he is Lord. And you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you would be saved. But the only way that will happen is if you entrust yourself to his mercy. If you keep saying, I got this, God, you are being wise in your own sight. And you will be put to shame on the last day. Salvation is completely dependent upon God's mercy, and that's what he's trying to get across here. And so this is even true for us who have believed. Look in verse 30. For just as you were at one time, that's you Gentiles, non-Jews, 
Just as you at one time were disobedient to God, but now have received what? What? Mercy. Because of their disobedience. Why did you and I who believe right now receive mercy, which is salvation? Now, understanding what the opposite of mercy is, hardening. Okay, Israel's hardened, you receive mercy. Israel was hardened, their, their spiritual eyes were shut, their ears were plugged, their hearts were hardened. You received mercy, which is what? Your hearts were softened, your eyes were open, your ears were unplugged. And what does that result in? You believe. That's God's mercy in your life. Now, none of us knew that was going on when we became Christians, right? None of us have any cognizance of that going on. And, and maybe right now you're saying, I, I, I don't, that wasn't my experience. Well, Paul's saying it is your experience. Even if you didn't experience it that way, that, that's, that's what really happened. As you believe, God was mercying you. And so, yeah, we, we don't realize that God was showing us mercy and he was judging Israel. You see the, the, the playoff here. We often think of this only around ourselves. We only think of, well, this is my story, and it is your story, but you, are, you and I are just a drop in the ocean of God's plans. And as he was showing mercy to you, he was hardening Israel. And the reason he gave us mercy is because of their disobedience. Their rejection of the gospel, God brings mercy to you and me. And so what I want us to see here is that God was doing more than we realized when we first believed the gospel. God was at work. He was doing something on a far grander scale. And here's where the wonder of it is. And he included us. If you believe, he called you into his marvelous grace. He says, you're mine. You're part of this. Verse 31, he goes on. So he's mercied us because of their disobedience. That's Israel's. Verse 31, why? So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So now they're in the position that you and I used to be in darkness so that their only hope is the mercy of God to save them. Now, now it's always been God's mercy, but here, from Israel's point of view, what do they think they need to do? Keep the law. Even today, the most devout Jews, keep the law, rebuild the temple, let's do it right this time. That's God's hardening. Because they think they're running to win the prize and they're running the race. The problem is they're running the wrong race. And God's letting them. And the only hope for them, Paul is saying, is that God mercies them just like he mercied you and I who weren't running the race. So it doesn't matter if you're running the wrong race or not running at all. You still need God's mercy. You're at the same position. And that's what he wants us to see. They have a zeal for God, verse chapter 10, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And frankly, that's what all humanity is doing. 
whatever standard or means or human wisdom that they they have conjured up by which they will achieve utopia, heaven, forgiveness of sins, or whatever the religious label is that they put on it. God says, unless I mercy you, you will have no part. And the good news is, is if you call upon his name, he'll, he'll mercy you. He'll show you mercy. And so Paul summarizes this thought here in verse 32. This is the even playing field. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. Everybody is actually in the same boat. Sinful humanity dead in their trespasses and sins. And the only way a dead person lives is if life is given to them. It's the only way. That's the only way you were saved. That's the only way anybody else will be saved. That's the only way Israel will be saved. And the majority of them will be resurrected, it seems, at the return of Christ, some point of that time. He's enslaved. He's consigned all to disobedience, he said. What a picture. I didn't really feel like I was enslaved to my sin when I was in my sin. Apart from Christ, maybe I, I, re, I look back and I see it, but I thought I was living free. But I was blinded. I was consigned. I was imprisoned. But he set our souls free. We shine the light of the gospel in our hearts. This is just like Paul, even though Paul's was a little more dramatic. Think about Paul's road to Damascus. What, what was he? He was, he was running the race. It was zeal for God. And I'm going to go kill these people who say they're your people. And he had permission from the high priest to go into the towns and to your home and drag you out to imprison you and ultimately have you executed. And as he is on the road to Damascus, what happens? He meets Jesus. Except the opposite happens. His eyes are blinded so that he may see. His eyes are blinded so that he may see. And I think there's some sense that this might be analogous to what Israel experiences on the last day. When Jesus comes, they'll be like Paul who sees the risen Christ in all his glory. And they mourn as they look upon him whom they've pierced and they believe. They repent in sackcloth and ashes. And he shows them mercy. And what about us at the present time? Well, God is doing the same thing to us, isn't he? He gives us eyes to see even what our physical eyes do not see. I don't see Jesus with my physical eyes. I don't see him whom, I've, whom we have pierced with my physical eyes. He's, he's not here. He's been taken up to the heavenly Jerusalem. Yet without seeing, we believe. Why? Because we have the sight that matters at this point. We have the eyes of faith. And he caused us to see. And how did we see? We, we saw through hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, right? In hearing, we believed. And so we, 
were like the soldier who stared up at the risen, at the crucified Christ, and everybody else saw a thief crucified. But what did that soldier who had crucified Jesus do? He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He wasn't seeing with his physical eyes. He was seeing with the eyes of faith. And how did that happen? How did he go from crucifying Jesus to believing in him? How'd that happen? He saw Jesus. Jesus mercied him and opened his eyes. And he believed. And if you're a believer today, I want you to know that 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 same impossible event happened in your life. Whether it was a revival preacher coming to preach to you the gospel, or whether it was your mother and father who opened up the scriptures to you, or whether it was a church camp, or whether you had a copy of a Gideon Bible and you opened it up and you began reading, he mercied you and he opened your eyes. And you said, truly, this one is the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this passage has lifted a veil, hasn't it? I hope it has. A veil and given us a glimpse of the divine side of things, of how God's grace and mercy have been lavished upon us and has revealed to us why we believe the gospel and why we were drawn to Christ. And when we think of these things, it shows us that God's plan is transcendent. This is God's transcendent plan. And as we've journeyed up this mountain of Romans 9 through 11, and we have now reached the peak, here's here's what happens. We've reached the peak and we realize, oh no, it's just the beginning. There's endless elements to explore and endless elements to comprehend. And the truth is, as Paul will say, they're incomprehensible. We get to the top of this mountain and we say, I know nothing at all. I am not wise in my own sight. I don't understand. God is far greater than I could ever imagine. I thought I understood my own life, my own story. We find out Noah is better than how you understood it. There's better things for you, as the scripture tells us. And what we realize is there is infinitely more to be discovered about our Savior. And brothers and sisters, in the new heaven and new earth, when this deliverer comes from Zion, we'll be exploring his glories forever and a new heavens, and a new earth, and it'll be as it should be. This is why Paul bursts out in praise in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depths. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who's been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Be glory to God forever. Amen. In this hymn of praise, we are confessing. When we say verse 33, we're confessing our ignorance. But blissful ignorance it is. We are confessing, I cannot get my mind around your judgments, your decisions, the way that you work. You don't work like humans work. And although it may seem arbitrary, as we see, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated, I've chosen a remnant of grace, but the rest I've hardened. For us, he's just showing us what he's doing, but we don't have the inner workings of all the ultimate purposes. All he says is he does it according to his purpose of election. 
And we trust that he's good and just. And what he is doing is for the ultimate good and his glory. Say, I can't get my mind around that. Your ways, they're inscrutable. I, I, can't, I mean, these are, this is just language escapes us. I, I cannot even explain it. I, it it's unsearchable. That's all, all we got. And we're all tempted to say, no, no, it's this, and this solves all my problems. You should feel attention as we read these passages of Scripture. You should feel the, both the kindness and severity of God, as Paul said. Oh, he's been kind to me, but that's severe. His judgments, his ways, unsearchable. So whatever side you land on, on these debates, if you land on a side, you're wrong. They're unsearchable. You just uphold them both. You say they're there. It's mystery. How is it mystery? Well, God's sovereign over our salvation and judgment. Chapter 9, he raises up Pharaoh for this purpose, to harden his heart to save Israel. Yet Pharaoh is responsible. How is that possible? If you raised him up for this purpose, that's, that's seemingly, from my mind, a contradiction. He says, it's not, and I'm not going to explain it to you. That's what he says. And so it is in all his workings. Why did I believe in the next guy and next gal didn't? Because I hardened them, because they didn't believe. Which is it, Lord? Both. No, which one is it? Did I choose or did you mercy me? Both. Both. Unsearchable. That's why he goes on. He says, for who, he, he's quoting from Job here, but who, who's known the mind of the Lord? And if you know the story of Job, why'd you do this, God? Well, I'm not going to tell you. For my glory. For my purposes. And we say, who's known the mind of the Lord? I, I, I can't get in your mind. I only know what you've told me. There's a tension with these things. Notice that his plans don't accord with human wisdom. Who's been his counselor? You know, he never said, hey guys, do you think this will work out? That's not how God works. Hey, do you think this plan would be acceptable to you? No. He doesn't seek our counsel. He does. Or who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? This is particularly a, a jab at human achievement, whether it's Israel's adherence to the law or, or our determination to, to be justified by works. He says, you think you'll do something that I have to repay you? <laughs> the air that you breathe by which you think you're doing stuff is a gift from me. Your heartbeat, it's a voluntary muscle we learn, right? Who do you think's volunteered to make that thing work? God does. The one who holds the world by the word of his power, and you're going to use the very things that I hold and sustain together, and, and you think I should owe you? I mean, we see this on a small scale. If you have young children who, who clean up their room and say, hey, can I have money to go buy something? Um, that's what you're supposed to do. 
you haven't done anything that you deserve to be repaid? How much more so the Creator God who's given us everything, life and breath? And so ultimately, it just leads us to verse 36. The only end here is that He gets glory forever. Everything is for Him, through Him, and to Him. It's comprehensible are incomprehensible. I think a good way to sum it up is what Paul said in Romans 9, 16. He says, so then it, what's the it? Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who what? But on God who what? Has mercy. It's mercy. It's mercy. Just a moment now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Brother Mike, those of you who are going to help us pass out the, the, the cup and the bread and come forward. When we come to the table, we're coming to the mercy table. The table of those who have been mercied by Christ. And this meal, it's a symbol, but it represents a reality that we are at the heavenly table of God, that He has graced us. And His mercy has been given to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so when we take it, we don't say, oh, how great am I? No, we say, how great thou art, right? You're great. You're awesome. You have shown kindness to me. So if you're here today and you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you've never believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you haven't professed that through what we call believer's baptism, that's not when you were an infant, but you believed and then you confessed and you demonstrated that through the waters of baptism, this table, if you haven't ever been there, this table is not for you at this time. But it's our prayer and it's our invitation to you that you would trust Christ and you would confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you would share and profess your faith in his mercy to you and you would demonstrate it through the waters of baptism and next month you're at this table. That's our prayer. For us who are believers going to demonstrate God's mercy through a visual. And if you're not a believer, watch and, and think on these things. The bread represents Christ's body, which was broken for sinners like you and me. And the cup represents his blood, which was shed for sinners like you and me. And so we eat and we drink which represents that Christ is in us and we are in him, that we are inseparable and that his gifts and his calling are irrevocable because he has judged his son and he has raised his son and he will sit and reign forevermore and all who know him will be with him forevermore. So with that being said, let's sing and uh, let's pass the, the bread as we take and remember Christ crucified for us.